So uh, for a while, I worked in a job that asked me to travel frequently. So I went to all sorts of places, and I met all sorts of people, and I ate all... I'm just not going to move. Just stay like this the whole time. <laughs> you want me to just use the, the, the pulpit? Okay. Sorry. So I got to eat all sorts of foods. My supervisors, who I traveled with, uh, liked to eat and drink a lot. So often they choose very nice restaurants for the evening meal. I didn't mind it at all because the company was footing the bill. Anyhow, at many of these restaurants, the menu was preset in advance. You couldn't choose what you wanted to eat. Um, at restaurants like these, the meal was an opportunity to experience the virtues of a chef and the variety of tastes and textures associated with the foods they chose to feature that evening in the five or nine or twelve or eighteen course meals. And at the beginning, you don't receive a menu, you kind of receive a guide explaining what you're about to receive next and why. Almost always on guides like these, at some point in the meal, a food would be served, followed by the words, two ways. For instance, Brussels sprouts, two ways. And this meant that the chef chose to feature the various tastes and textures of Brussels sprouts by preparing them in two different ways and by placing them together on the same plate. I like this sort of thing particularly well because the experience of a food can be so radically different. And yet at its foundation, the food is the same. You might find on one half of the plate roasted Brussels, basted in blood orange juices and drizzled with honey. And on the other side, Brussels toasted with pine nuts and Parmesan and a garlic olive oil drizzle. Right? It's, it's not noon yet, guys. That plate becomes an opportunity to know the full potential of the food, to see it from radically different perspectives, and you walk away feeling a fuller appreciation of that thing. That's sort of what's happening in this passage today. Imagine you're seated at a fine restaurant and you've just been handed a guide. Our guide might read the kingdom of God two ways. Sometimes the Bible is so clever I can hardly handle it. This is one of those times because the passage we're going to read today is doing two things at once. And yet it's such a simple series of stories. The tone of the author doesn't shift for a moment. The stories aren't subdivided into phrases and the themes aren't clearly distinguished from one another. But at the end of the passage, there it is. The kingdom of God, two ways. This passage teaches us about the kingdom of God by reflecting on that kingdom according to two very different perspectives. And the challenge before us this morning is to sort through those perspectives, to carefully identify the tastes and textures of each prepared dish so that we might walk away with a fuller appreciation of the kingdom. First, I think it would be helpful to explain exactly what I think the author of Samuel is teaching us about the kingdom of God in this passage. 
Then we'll read the passage and take them each in turn. So there are, I think, two major themes resonating in this passage. First, God is willing to bless the kingdom of David despite the sin of David because God is single-mindedly determined to save his people by the work of Jesus. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that the nations will respond to this kingdom of God by either honoring his anointed or by raging against his anointed. And in both responses, God is glorified. All right, so that's the two themes that we're going to deal with. That's what I think is happening in this short passage. And if you look carefully, I think you'll see them too. So everybody turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 5. Second Samuel chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 10. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elushua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishema, Elida, and Elephelet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel... All the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come out and spread in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give them, give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Belperazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, go around to their rear, and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the top of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Okay, let's get started. I told you just a moment ago that I thought this passage was doing two things. The first is this. God is willing to bless the kingdom of David despite the sin of David because God is single-mindedly determined to save his people by the work of Jesus. Or, stated more simply, God's determination to save his people is why he blesses David's kingdom despite David's sin. When... Men and women who are not Christians consider our faith. A commonly voiced obstacle 
is the sin of those who are. They might say things like, if God exists and the gospel is true, the church would be a lot more welcoming. Or they may claim that the divorce rate in in evangelical churches or schisms within Christian denominations are evidences that the claims of Christianity are hollow and have no correspondence to reality. It's something that I hear a lot. And on my darkest days, it's something I begin to consider. So I want to explore for a moment that idea in order to demonstrate that the frailty of Christians, rather than upending the claims of the gospel, instead affirm the claims of the gospel. A good place to start is the passage we've just read. I want to quickly reread the first paragraph. Follow along with me, starting in verse 10. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messages to David and cedar trees and also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Now, the first thing I think worth noticing is that the author has now repeated twice in three sentences that David became a great king because God was with him. David became a great king for the reason that God was with him. It was God's blessing that changed the situation. It was God's favor. God took a shepherd and made him a king. God took a boy and made him a warrior. It was God who did it. And the second thing worth noticing, I think, is why God did it. The Lord had established David as king over Israel. The Lord had exalted his kingdom. Why? For the sake of his people. Not because David was righteous. Not because David was strong. Not because David sacrificed at all the right times or obeyed the covenant restrictions or kept himself from idolatry. Not because David was obedient all the time. No, that's not the reason. Why did God bless David's throne? For the sake of his people. That sentence is important because it operates to explain what happens as this passage unfolds. What follows in the next paragraphs is a reminder of how God blesses David's throne alongside subtle reminders of David's sin. This passage begins with an explicit reminder that David wears the crown, that David reigns over Israel, that David is mighty in battle because God cares about his people. And then we learn that God's blessing is always unfolding despite David's foolishness. If you keep reading, you'll notice yet another list of David's growing family. Even though he already has a lot of wives, David takes more. Even though the law forbids it, even though it's a sign of the coming wickedness of kings, David takes more wives and concubines because he cares more about realizing his lusts than he does about covenant faithfulness. And I don't think I'm overstating here because the author chooses to arrange this list in such a way that any informed reader would see David's sin behind it. The first four children mentioned, Shamua, 
Shobab, Nathan, Solomon. The first four children mentioned are sons of a single bride. You'll never guess who. David moves to Jerusalem, and what does he do? He takes wives. And you might read those words and imagine nameless brides, the eldest daughter of this or that elder in Israel, or the princess of this or that nearby kingdom. But that's not the point of this paragraph. The author goes out of his way to let you know which wife David takes in Jerusalem. Among the many wives he took, among the many concubines, David took Bathsheba, the wife of his close friend, his loyal servant, the mighty warrior, the faithful Uriah, whom David murders in cold blood to cover up a messy affair. The first four children mentioned on this list are the sons of Bathsheba, which means that this list, unless I've made some serious errors, could not have been constructed chronologically. The author means for us to make this connection. We're meant to see this. We're meant to see that David's sin is seriously compromising his leadership over God's people. Now what's fascinating about this paragraph is is that it's sandwiched between two pretty extraordinary displays of God's blessing on David's reign. Above it, we find that David, in might and valor by the strength of God's right arm, takes Jerusalem, being obedient to the covenant. We see David claim the promised land and make way for the worship to God by the might of God, by the movement of God. And below this paragraph, we learn that David leads the mighty men of Israel to battle against the wicked enemies of God's people. By prophecy they are delivered, by the whispers of God. David leads his men to crush the enemies of God's people by the might of God himself. And when they leave their idols in the field, he and his men carry them away to be burned. The display of David's might, David's blessing, David's growing kingdom, David's intimacy with God in this passage is extraordinary. And right smack in the middle, right in between this display of God's blessing is an allusion to David's covenant infidelity. David's insatiable passions, which led to a broken marriage covenant, a secret affair, a child conceived in sin, a heartless plot, cold-blooded murder, and a cursed kingdom. What makes this paragraph so memorable is that it's sandwiched between God's blessings on David's kingdom. So why was David's kingdom blessed? If he failed so completely to model righteousness, why? That's an important question. Why was David's kingdom blessed? The Lord had exalted David's kingdom for the sake of his people. David was made great. His kingdom was exalted, not because he was obedient, not because he kept the covenant. No, it wasn't about David at all. God blessed David to teach his people to hope in a better David. God blessed the kingdom of David in order to establish the line of the son of David. It was for the sake of God's people that he blessed David's kingdom. It was for the sake of God's people, for their good, for their rescue, 
for their redemption, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That's whispers and prophecies of a coming son of David. The plan for God's people from the outset was redemption. God's plan from the very beginning was to redeem his people by the blood of his beloved son. David's kingdom was established to make a way for the son of man and his kingdom. The king of Israel was established to make way for the true king of Israel. God used the frailty of David to, pe- to teach his people to look for a stronger king. God used the sin of David to teach people to look for a righteous king. And all the patience on display from that point to this, all the mercy poured out from that point to this, all of that is a demonstration of God's radical willingness to use broken men and women to exalt the name of Christ. It is his way. It is his means to exalt the name above all names. God chose what was foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So when my friends and neighbors highlight the frailty of Christians, that's my answer. That's my answer to the charges leveled against the sons and daughters of God. When men and women level charges against us, when they identify sin in our hearts, that's our answer. Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. When people see our weakness and level charges against our faith, we must reply, Christ came to do what I cannot do. Christ came to save his people who were lost and without hope, hating and being hated. Yes, we are weak. Yes, we do fail. And that's precisely why we need Christ. God is radically willing to use broken men and women to exalt the King of Kings. When we learn that we are dust, when we learn that we contribute nothing to the rescue of our own souls, when we find day after day that the spirit is willing but that the flesh is weak, when we fight day after day the restless pull of remaining sin, when we grow weary and come to the end of ourselves, how do you respond to that frailty? How do you respond when charges are leveled against you? How do you respond to your own failures? I want you to read something. Not not read something. You couldn't, even if I wanted you to, because it's right here. I want to read something to you. 
This is a story from Mark Dever, who's a pastor in Washington, D.C. He says, years ago, when I was preparing to leave England and move back to the United States, I met a relative whom I had never met before. After some chit-chat, she asked me what I was going to do. I answered a question, I answer a question about my occupation in one of two ways, tactful or direct. I decided to go for direct. I'm going to be a Baptist preacher. Oh, she said, dropping her eyes down to her coffee and stirring it, obviously uncomfortable with the turn of the, that the conversation had just taken. I don't have much use for church. I waited a moment and then said, do you mind if I ask why? She replied, they're just pits of vipers, all the gossip and backbiting. I then asked, and do you think the world outside is really any better? She said, well, I guess not, but at least they know they're vipers. Again, I waited a moment and then observed, you might be surprised how much I agree with you. You're right about the world. It's a pit of vipers. And I think you're right about the church, too. I know that the church I know that the church is a pit of vipers. But I think where I would disagree is that I don't think the world realizes that they are a pit of vipers. But Christians do. Now there are churches that don't realize they are a pit of vipers and I wouldn't touch those churches with a 10-foot pole. But any church I will go to, any church I go to will know that it is a pit of vipers. That's why we are there. And you know what? There's always room for one more to slither in. (laughs) Look, your redemption burst onto the scene when you recognized your own frailty. Do you remember that moment? If you're in Christ, do you remember that moment when you saw your sin for what it was the very first time? When you cried out for the Lord who saves the worst sorts of people. You cried out at that moment because you saw crystal clear that Jesus was the only hope for you. Don't ever leave that moment. You don't ever mature beyond that moment. If your faith ever evolves beyond the feeling of a desperate need for the righteousness of Christ because a horrifying awareness of your own wretchedness, then you're walking in the wrong direction. We don't ever stop crying out for the God who saves. We don't ever stop needing the righteousness of King Jesus, ever. He is exalted in the redemption of the least of these His praise is lifted when the weak cry out for strength. His praise is lifted when the wretched cry out for righteousness. His praise is lifted when fools cry out for wisdom. See your desperation for what it is. And when you see it, praise Christ who bought you with his priceless blood. Praise Christ who keeps you despite your frailty. Praise Christ who intercedes on your behalf. Praise Christ who sent the Spirit to sanctify you. And praise Christ who promises to return and finish the good work. David's failure taught the people of God to look forward to that better David. 
the failure of the king of Israel taught the people of God to look forward to a better king. And God's patience towards David is a demonstration of his willingness to use broken men and women to highlight the worth and wisdom and power and honor of the king of kings. So that's one thing that this passage is doing. Now let's look at the other. The Psalms are a great help if you want to understand the life of David. Really, the Psalms are a great help if you want to understand the entire Bible. And I think if you were to think about the Psalms as a single book, you might begin to sort out a few central characters. God, the anointed king, God's people, and the nations. Of course, that, that's overly simplistic, but it's helpful for me to think about the movements of the Psalms in light of these characters. At times we read the prayers of the anointed king who is suffering and he cries out to God for deliverance. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. At times we read the praise of God's people who remembers God's act of love and kindness. And while the dynamics shift slightly throughout the Psalms, the relationship between God and his people and the relationship between God and the anointed king always remains constant. That isn't how it works with the nations. The nations are represented throughout the Psalms But the dynamic of their relationship to God and their relationship to the anointed king shifts dramatically. For instance, the second psalm begins with these words. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. We see this sort of thing a lot in the psalms. The nations rally against God, rage against God's king, and hate all that they stand for. In this case, the nations are the great enemy of God's people and God's kingdom, and they will be crushed, dashed to pieces like pottery. But sometimes the dynamic shifts radically. Sometimes the Psalms reflect on the nations that submit to the anointed king in hushed honor who praise the work of God and the reign of God's anointed king. Sometimes the nations are glad and sing for joy. Sometimes the nations rise up and bless the work of God. In both cases, God is glorified. God's glory is on display when he judges the wicked nations, and God's glory is on display when nations dance in his redemption. And I wanted to reflect on this dual portrayal of the nations in the Psalms because that's exactly what's happening in this passage. Take a look back at verse 11. Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. How did David know that? It says, and David knew. How? 
Why would David see this tribute and make that connection? Okay, there are, there, there are two sentences here. In the first sentence, the nation brings tribute to David. And in the second sentence, David recognizes that the Lord has exalted his kingdom. And I love that these two sentences accompany one another because it means that the vision of God's kingdom has never changed since the very beginning. The promise of a coming kingdom of God has always included the tribute of the nations. Since the very first whispers of God calling Father Abraham to a new land. Since the promises made to Abraham so many generations ago. The the building vision of the coming kingdom of God hasn't changed. All the hope planted in Abraham's heart. All the hope of a world restored. Of the nations blessed. Of the ancient prophecies of a promised land remains untouched. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's an ancient promise. All the nations of the earth would be blessed by Abraham's seed. And David knew it. And Jesse knew it. And Boaz knew it. And Gideon knew it. And Joshua knew it. And Moses knew it. And Joseph knew it. Every generation. All of the sons of Abraham looked forward to the day when God's promises would be fulfilled. When all the families of the earth would be blessed by the work of God through Abraham's line. So when David receives tribute from Hiram, king of Tyre, he makes the connection that we're supposed to make too. As each faithful generation comes to a close with eager eyes on the horizon, as we, as we pace closer to the coming kingdom of God, we'll see nations that will be blessed by God's work and they'll honor the anointed king. David's house Standing on the cedars of Tyr is testimony that God is yet working to fulfill his promise to his people. King Hiram's gift is a foreshadow of the honor of the nations who will stand in awe of God's work to redeem his people and who will themselves become a part of his house. David, who is a type of the one to come, gets a taste of this honor and sees in it the faithfulness of God to keep his ancient promises. The way that the king of Tyr responds to God's work and to God's king is a foreshadow of the nation's faithful response to the work and reign of King Jesus. When Christ, the son of David, returns... Men and women of every tribe, tongue, and nation will dine at his table and will praise his name. When the anointed is proclaimed, people from every nation will bow their knee and proclaim his name, will find peace at the foot of the cross, will be sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the inheritance to come, and will long for his return. They will bring tribute, the tribute of their lives spent To prepare his people. They will bring the honor of praise and prayer and proclamation. That's one way 
that the nations will respond to the return of the true king. But it's not the only way. Pick up the passage in verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the strongholds. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, go around to their rear, and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the top of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. So take note, as soon as the Philistines learn that David has become king over Israel, they rally their armies to destroy him. This is personal for them. They don't generally dislike the people of Israel. They have a specific distaste for the reign of David. You may remember that for years David dwelt among them, feigning loyalty while crippling their hold on the region. The Philistines hate David. They are fundamentally at odds with him. And when they learn that he's king, they rally their armies against him. Armies march to end his kingdom. Armies with a vendetta, driven by hate, driven by lust for a people oppressed, driven by rage against justice. The armies of Philistia unite against the king of Israel. And that's a foreshadow if ever there was one. I used to believe that the world was getting better. I read books about war, devastating wars that took the lives of millions. I saw documentaries on slavery, on the slave trade. And then I also read books on the abolition movement. And I noted suffrage movements that gave voice to minorities who had been in the past abused and taken for granted. So I felt that the world was getting better. In a word, the world seemed to be unifying. More people seem to share a common worldview now than in centuries past, and fewer people seem willing to kill one another because they so radically disagree. On evidence of unity, I began to believe that the world was a better place than it used to be until I read the last book of the Bible. Just prior to Christ's return, the nations will enjoy seamless unity. No disagreements among their ranks of one mind, arm in arm united against Christ and against his coming kingdom. The vision of the world on the brink of destruction is a vision of the world unified by hatred, 
The nations will rage against Christ because they hate him. His vision is at odds with their vision. His mission is at odds with their mission. They seek the throne that rightfully belongs to him. So, every step closer to the return of Christ is a step closer to the united rage of the nations. The Philistines represent this disposition, and their end is a foreshadow of the end of all those who would shake their fists at the kingdom of Christ. Did you notice how handily David defeated these wicked men? By the might of God, by the whispers of prophecy, David crushes the armies of the Philistines. He broke through their ranks like breaking floodwaters. David and his men were helped by God to crush the ranks of their enemies. And all of this is a grim shadow of the son of David's righteous rage. Turn for a moment to Psalm 2. Right there in the middle. Psalm 2 is a prophetic song that looks forward to the righteous rage of King Jesus against the nations who will rise up against him. And I want to read it to you now. And as I read it, I want you to hear it as a warning and to hear it as an invitation. You'll see what I mean in a moment. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. Then you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. I told you a moment ago that this song was a warning and that it's also an invitation. And I told you that because this song is addressed to the nations and we are the nations. You and I, this is not Israel. We do not count ourselves among the ancient race, the chosen people who were given the law and the prophets, the oracles of God's word. We are those descended from wild branches. And God, in His grace, has given us this warning. Our sin is our natural state. Our comfort zone of rebellion against the one true God is the natural state of the nations. And all of that sin, all of that rebellion will build up inevitably to the rallying of armies against God and against His anointed King Jesus. 
At, at this point in your life, that may seem abstract. It may seem distant. But the Son of Man will come like a thief in the night. And you haven't the slightest clue how deceptive is your own heart. How willing you are to protect your right to rebellion if you are not in Christ. What I'm saying is that without a dramatic rescue from the sin that has corrupted your soul, you have no hope but to rally against the only good the world has ever known. And this song was written to warn you not to do so. The rage of the nations is a joke to the God who whispered the world into existence. Those whose armies will line up against King Jesus will be crushed in a moment. They will be defeated with a word. Therefore be warned, nations. Serve the Lord with fear. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Is that you? Do you take refuge in the King of Kings? Is he the stronghold to which you've run? Do you find safety under his wings? It's a fitting question to ask after reading this story. The nations will respond to King Jesus in one of two ways. They will rise up in praise or they will rally to war. Those who rage against him will be met with everlasting destruction. An end which can be only described in terms of fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth. In a moment, in a word, their rebellion will be crushed. And all that awaits these nations is hopeless darkness. But blessed are all of those who take refuge in him. Those who run to Christ will be adopted as sons. Those who take refuge in Jesus will receive an unimaginable inheritance and a seat at his table. Those who look forward to his return will be counted among his people to everlasting joy and peace, to everlasting praise. So be warned. Take refuge in the King, O nations. Don't make an enemy of your only hope. Bring a tribute of praise to the King of Kings and take shelter in his stronghold. For the day is coming when he will rescue a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And on that day he will crush his enemies forever. We're going to sing of this rescue now. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.